Welcome back again to Crossing the Jordan, everybody. I pray that you are all doing great. Today, we are going to continue our series on marriage. If uh, you have not listened to them, I highly recommend going back. They're all the podcast episodes titled 17.1 and .2.1 is talking about marriage in and of itself, the sacrament of marriage. The second one is we get into the principles of all the sexual moral teachings of the church, which is, I think, really, really beautiful. So uh, I highly recommend going to listen to that if you haven't already. But um, today we're going to specifically be talking about the topic of divorce to kind of wrap up our marriage discussion. Many, many, many more things could be said, but just for time's sake and for this podcast, um, we're going to just kind of keep it to these three brief topics and maybe in the future get into a lot more detail um, on all of these topics. But so specifically, let's talk about divorce in this episode. Um, kind of piggybacking on last uh, last week's episode where we were talking about um, the issue of contraception, which has had led to a just natural breakdown of the family, right? And in there, we talked about how it's increased um, the divorce rate and also decreased people getting married and all of these things, right? And so first, let's just I just want to give some statistics to kind of show um, the reality of of all of these situations, right? So in the world today, in the United States, the divorce rate across the board is 50%. So one in two marriages experience divorce. And that is not saying even that the other 50% are even happy, right? But they're just staying married. This is purely just 50% of marriages go through a divorce, Um, which on the topic, hopefully another day we can talk about um, just, yeah, like we want people to be happy in their marriages, which is only through the grace of Jesus Christ, right? To be, to have him centered and to love each other like we did to stay faithful to our vows um, and to have Jesus completely at the center of it and to love each other like Jesus has called us to do. And there are plenty of resources available today for uh, married couples to really flourish in their marriage too, to be living their best life. Um, but anyhow, uh, 50% is the divorce rate in the United States. Um, and when you kind of start breaking down into these different groups for people who have lived together before marriage, the divorce rate is 50% within the first five years of marriage. People who have not, um, lived together before marriage. So they waited to move in together or to, uh, express that marital act until marriage, it drops down to 20%. And so cohabiting, cohabiting just meaning that they live together before marriage, it has decreased the number of people who get married, but it's also increased divorce rates. So why are people cohabiting? Because like I mentioned in the and very briefly in the last episode, and I'll mention very briefly here, in my opinion, I think it's because my generation has seen a lot of divorces happen in that generation. And I think it's all driven back to the kind of sexual revolution and the use of contraception in our in our culture and what it's broken down into the families but but my, but so people are scared to commit to each other but we all still want other people to commit to us because we still desire and long for love and so because of this deterioration um, and relationships that we have seen in our culture. We have single people behaving like they're dating, dating people behaving like they're married, aka like living together, and we have married people living like they're single. They feel like they can do whatever they want, and there's really no uh, true binding commitment to it. So 
why would cohabiting lead to less marriages? Because once people are already doing everything that married people do, they're really comfortable and they really don't see why they should get married. Um, and oftentimes they might like a, like, look at marriage as just like a nicer thing to do or even start viewing it as just like a social construct that they don't really have to do. Um, and then on the other hand, why would cohabiting lead to divorces? I think it really just kind of boils down to simply the fact that it's hard to break up with your roommate, right? So people who move in together and sometimes people will say, well, I think it's a good step for our relationship. It would make us happy. It would solve all of our issues. Or I just, I need to know if I can live with the person, but you're really setting yourself up for failure because if like, let's just say you don't live together before marriage, what you're saying with your vows that you will do anything for this person and this person is saying, I will do anything for you just the very nature of you guys living together isn't going to tear you apart. It's it's going to be a learning experience, but you will do everything that you possibly can to be comfortable, to learn with each other, to adapt, right? But also in the relationship, if you're living together and you're in that close proximity, and but there's actually really no commitment behind it, such as like your marriage vows, well, then it still becomes really, really hard to break up when it's when it's bad or to realize that you actually are in a crappy relationship and can leave because you're just confined to, hey, I have a lease on this apartment or I, ha- I own this house with this person. And it becomes really hard to leave your roommate, right? So people can get really just comfortable by living together. So once they do take the next step in marriage, I think there's all of a sudden this realization of like, I don't, I'm not happy in this. Um, and I shouldn't have done this, but, uh, now I really want out and we can really see why marriages are just naturally more healthy and the divorce rate is lower. Remember that 20% purely just from, uh, waiting to live together or to participate in that marital act, because what you're doing before you even get married is practicing chastity as practicing self-control, practicing, uh, pure love of sacrificing for each other and knowing, the right order of relationships with each other. So you learn about each other on those mental, emotional, intellectual levels at a deeper level before you even embrace that physical act. So then when you're in marriage, then when you actually have to sacrifice for each other and you know how to talk to each other, you're not just you're not just using the physical to address other issues in your emotional, mental, intellectual state where um, you're just choosing to cover up all of these bad things by going to straight to the fullness of love in the physical act, but you actually know each other mentally, intellectually, emotionally. So then your marriage actually flourishes. And then that marital embrace is even so much more. It's even more expressing um, the fullness of your love that you have for each other. And because you're when you're in marriage, you also have to practice chastity. You can't abuse each other. You can't use each other. And that can easily happen if you already don't have that self-control or just that, that love purified where that instinct of a feeling of love doesn't turn into an instinct of lust and then start using each other, but actually loving each other, sacrificing for each other, And there's a lot of divorces because of this fact that they have, that a couple may have always used that physical act to be the sole source of strengthening in the relationship or the way of bonding or even using it to make up for fights or other things that are lacking in the relationship so they don't address these emotional, spiritual, intellectual 
um, mental things between the two and bond there, but they go straight to the physical. So then that's the only way that they can, they know how to um, love each other is in the physical. So then the physical act quickly turns into the sole purpose of, um, of feeling love and expressing love, or it's really just a way to reconcile. So it can turn a lot very, very quickly into not love expressed, but just a um, turn into using each other for pleasure or to just cover up another issue elsewhere in the relationship. And when a couple only knows that to be the way to strengthen or to make up in the relationship, then the physical act becomes the only way of feeling love and when that satisfaction of the physical act begins to leave with no other foundation of love underneath it because um, when that love is missing in the physical act well then the whole really the whole point of it is missing right because it's unitive and procreative right and it's the full fullness of giving of, of sacrifice that you would completely uh, give yourself and receive the other fully so when that love is not not in the foundation of it, which happens in all the other aspects of the relationship, then the physical is taken away or the physical becomes dissatisfactory anymore. Then the, the relationship, the, it can be easy for a couple to start seeking love in other places because they are no longer experiencing that physical satisfaction. So then that's where a lot of relationships um, turn to pornography or uh, other things that cause infidelity, which leads to an even further decrease in intimacy, trust, and love, and faith, and fidelity between each other, and it increases the possibility of divorce within that relationship. And those are just some very brief um, topics of that, but also it just highlights the importance of chastity before marriage because you need chastity within marriage because you are committed to your vows of being full, free, faithful, and fruitful within your relationship. And that marital act is supposed to be procreative and unitive. And that's why chastity within, outside of marriage leads to chastity and happiness within a marriage because now you have that that understanding and that that right relationship that right intimacy with your spouse and you know how to love the proper way and to express it fully right and that's why um, contraception is also bad because it becomes very easy for the couple to start just like the the couple before they were married that were engaging the physical act but within marriage too is when that physical act when it, there's there's no more the unitive or the procreative you begin using each other the physical act very quickly can lead from a uh, an intention of love to an intention of lust and begin using each other for the physical gratification of one's desires. And also a woman's body is already perfect. So we should start treating it like it's perfect because it is and start respecting the body and instead of acting like there's something wrong with it and then distorting it and then we begin using um, our our significant others and our loved ones in the in marriage and it leads to all this destructive things within marriage that lead to divorce. So um, yeah, and those are just really at the surface level. I think there's I think there's a lot of deeper issues that underlie that too. But continuing on with the divorce rates, those uh, married within the church, the divorce rate is thirty three percent. 
those who are married in the church and do not use contraception, it drops all the way down to 3.5%. Those who are married in the church do not use contraception and attend mass together, it's 2%. And then lastly, those who are married in the church do not use contraception, goes, go to mass together and praise together. Guess what the divorce rate is? 0.10%, 10 basis points. So I, one is uh, part of the world, about a 50% divorce rate. And the last, uh, the whole other extreme where people are uh, married in a church, do not use contraception, attend mass together and pray together. It's virtually nothing at all as far as statistics go showing divorces. So what is a divorce? A divorce typically in our um in our our country and our culture is just a civil separation, a civil divorce. So a married couple who is no longer together anymore, they don't um, live together or anything like that. You know, they're separated, they're divorced. That's more of like their civil secular term. What the church, uh, and that is very different from what uh, we call uh, a declaration of an annulment. An annulment is not a divorce because a divorce is actually splitting up a couple that were together as one flesh. So they're actually married and then split up, right? So that would be a divorce. An annulment is declaring that the marriage actually never took place um, in the first place due to impeding factors leading up and at the time of the wedding. In other words, an annulment is essentially showing that two pe- two single people walked in to this wedding ceremony and two single people left the wedding ceremony. So the marriage actually never took place. An example would be you meet somebody in Vegas on a late night and you guys get married in a chapel in Vegas. In the eyes of God in the church, that's not an actual marriage since it was never free faithful, full, or fruitful, but specifically it wasn't free, right? Like you were probably under, you are intoxicated or whatever it was uh, that led to you not even being in the right state of mind to marry this, to marry this stranger. So maybe in the, in the eyes of the civil court or whatever, you're, that's a marriage, but in the eyes of God in the church, that is not a, um, a marriage because it needs to be free, faithful, full, and fruitful. And so an annulment is a, is all it is, is going back to um, the very time of the wedding and determining if there is any impeding or deterring factors that were at place and and one of the the people that actually never brought them together in the first place. So it's not actually that that two people became one and then they split up. It was actually then annulment is actually investigating to see if that one flesh union actually ever even took place. Um, so very very different than a divorce. So. Um, and the only thing that can separate a valid bond of marriage between two people is death. Many people do not understand annulments, uh, and I was definitely one of them and did not understand it. And it seemed, and it seems to some people as undue heavy burden or stress, um, cause it is, it, it can be tough going through that process, but, um, but essentially the church is remaining faithful to Jesus's words that divorce is never allowed without any exception. So the church reviews the facts at the time of the ceremony uh, that, that, that it actually took place, the wedding took place, and they review all the facts to see if there was anything that may have impeded an actual union taking place, such as signs before the marriage that would have uh, showed that there were holes in the boat, as an analogy, um, 
for example, like there are certain issues or signs, uh, uh, signs of issues, such as there might've been a sign of like, this person might be, uh, unfaithful or uh, had anger issues or abusive issues and things like that. Or just simply the, this couple actually didn't even understand what a marriage actually is. Right. So the church needs to do its research and its review through that whole process to see if there was actually a valid union that took place uh, that on the day of their wedding. So, so if the marriage tribunal of the church goes through and says, yes, that we have declared that this is an annulment, there was never a union that actually took place, then those people are free to marry others because they were never bound to a marriage in the first place. But if the annulment is denied, um, and it's me, which just means simply that a valid marriage actually did take place, and this these two people are a validly married one flesh union uh, couple. Therefore, they're not free to marry anybody else. So they can, after that, they can either reconcile with each other and stay committed to their vows that they that they um, that they said on their wedding day. Or if it's a really, really bad situation, like let's just go to the extreme of that there's abuse in the the marriage, then the church would say, you absolutely need to protect yourself and you shouldn't um, be uh, putting yourself in harm's way because this person is not submitting to Jesus, according to Ephesians 5, right? So um, if that's the case, then the church even says that you can actually go through a civil divorce and separate, but still in the eyes of God and the church, they are still married and therefore cannot remarry. Um, so let's actually read what Jesus says about divorce and remarriage in the Gospels, where he actually very, very plainly speaks that divorce and remarriage is never acceptable. There are no exceptions. So we're going to read Mark, Luke, Romans, and 1 Corinthians. Uh, and these four, these two gospels and two other letters, it's clear that Mark, Luke, and St. Paul have zero exceptions. And then we're going to come back to Matthew um, after that. But starting in, starting in Luke 16, 18, Jesus says, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. In Mark 10, 1 uh, through 12, I'm going to read the whole thing. Um, it's the, the parallel verse of this is in Matthew 19, which we're going to come back to later. But I'm going to read the whole thing here, starting in verse 2. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and, put, and to put her away. But Jesus said to them, For your hardness of heart he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to, to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And then in Romans 2 through 3, in Romans 7, 2 through 3, St. Paul writes, A married woman is bound by law to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. 
And then St. Paul again in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, chapter 7, verses 10 through 11, he writes, To the married I give charge, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, let her remain single or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. And St. Paul continues uh, later on in verse 39 of that same chapter. He says, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If the husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. So we have seen in Mark, Luke, and Romans and 1 Corinthians that there is no exception for divorce in a valid marriage until death, right? So, however, when you go to Matthew 5 and 19, it appears that there is an exception that Jesus is making, right? So we're going to take a look at that now. So let's go to Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. So this is right after Jesus's uh, Beatitudes, and this is during his dialogue of expressing his authority even over the Mosaic law by his statements that are uh, in the in the form of Jesus saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So Jesus is taking authority even over over that law from God. So he's saying, um, which he always raises up the true meaning of the law. It's about the heart, right? So Jesus says here in uh, chapter 5, verse 31, 32 of Matthew's gospel, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then again in Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, it appears that Jesus is making an exception based on the grounds of unchastity like he did in Matthew 5. And this is the parallel passage of what we heard earlier in Mark uh, in Mark 10 where a Pharisee is testing him and he goes back to the original law um, and, and it was the hardness of heart where Moses gave us the bill of certificate of divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so that a man and woman come together and they have one flesh union and they and let no man put asunder who, when God has joined them together. So, uh, at the very end of that dialogue though, unlike uh, Mark 10 and Matthew 19, it, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife, except for unchastity, that is the difference right there. And marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So a lot of people look at that text plainly and say, well, there it is. There's one exception. It's people who are unfaithful. It's people who commit adultery in the context of marriage, right? So, but as we have seen, everywhere else, there is zero exception. So let's kind of dive in to give some context of Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. So in the first century, near the Mediterranean, divorce and remarriage were really common except among the Jews. So, and obviously we have seen that Jesus uses very strong language in condemning that practice. But as we have seen in Mark, Luke, and from St. Paul, in each of these times where where there were no exceptions, they were writing to Greco-Roman audiences, right? Whereas Matthew's audience is a Jewish audience. So the Greco-Roman world, that is where marriage and divorce were, or divorce and remarriage were very common. So the writers, the they knew that their audience of the Greco-Roman world needed to know the exception even more than the Jewish audience for which Matthew wrote. And in those contexts, um, in Mark, Luke, and St. Paul, there were zero exceptions writing to the Greco-Roman world, right? But it was only in Matthew's gospel where this exception takes place. 
And so it is written specifically to a Jewish audience. So it suggests that they reflect some issue of particular concern to Jews. So let's investigate what that might be. So there are several possibilities, all getting to the same conclusion that Jesus is not allowing any exception within a valid marriage. But I'm only going to discuss one of them here. And I'm actually, I have a link to a really good in-depth article in the show notes. So go to that if you want to read more. But the Greek term... Uh, the Greek term used here by uh, Jesus, he was speaking Aramaic, 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 but the New Testament was written in Greek. The Greek term there in Matthew 5 and 19 is porneia, which literally means prostitution, but is also where we get the word porn from. Um, but it gets directly, tra- it gets translated to unchastity. But the Greek word for, and that's different from the Greek word of adultery, which is mokeia, which I think that's probably the wrong pronunciation, but it's a different word for adultery. Um, and that is an adultery that that Greek word mokeia is actually within the context of a valid marriage. But here, porneia, Greek word for unchastity, is being used and meaning of unchaste behavior before the marriage is consummated, which at that point, it is possible to dissolve the marriage because the bar- the marriage actually never took place because marriages only p- become indissoluble only when they are consummated. So that seems a little weird in today's world where the tradition of the wedding night, it is very hot, it is very unlikely that a spouse could be unfaithful between the marriage ceremony and the consummation, which usually takes place like the same night. But in Jesus's time and uh, in the Jewish context, it was customary for a couple to be legally married for about a year before the consummation. So the bride continued to live with their family while the husband prepared their home. At the end of this time, there was the fetching of the bride ceremony where the groom took his bride back to his own home with family and friends accompanying them. Then during the wedding party, the couple would retire and consummate their union. So clearly within this long time frame, typically a year between that time of a of um, like that first ceremony where it was just vows and the second ceremony would lead to consummation of the of the wedding within that long period of time unchastity was very possible on the part of one of the on one of the spouses right and so why would Matthew be the only evangelist to point out the possibility of dissolving such unions because he is the only one who mentions that when Mary was discovered to be with child by the Holy Spirit when in Matthew 1.19, Joseph had in mind to divorce her quietly. He alone would seem to have a reason to clarify why Joseph's planned course of action was legitimate, given what Jesus said later regarding marriage. And so even with Matthew, uh, he clarifies right in the context of Joseph wanting to divorce Mary quietly on the ground of unchastity because she was pregnant during that time. that Joseph was a righteous man, according to Matthew 119. So Matthew is even drawing out the fact that uh, Joseph was still righteous, even with that new sacramental marriage that that Jesus later talks about in the Gospels, that it is only acceptable um, it's never acceptable to for a divorce to take place, but uh, that they can become separated in between that time of the vows and the consummation um, due to unchastity, right? So 
Finally, if Matthew were espousing adultery as grounds for divorce, he would soon run up against a very grave practical difficulty. So let's just say, for argument's sake, that divorce and remarriage were permitted for a husband and a wife who had committed adultery, but that a husband and wife who remained faithful to each other would not be allowed to divorce. The only thing to do for a faithful Christian couple who wanted a divorce would be to commit adultery, after which a dissolution of the marriage would be allowed. But what would happen from that is divorce on demand with a technical loophole of committing adultery. So this all constitutes a very strange church discipline, one in which adultery seems encouraged and fidelity discouraged, right? So in that exact situation has actually been found in many Protestant churches, according to a Protestant biblical scholar uh, named John Meyer. Meyer also said that any experienced evangelical counselor can attest that many evangelicals who find themselves in difficult marital situations do commit purposefully adultery in order to divorce and remarry. They may say to themselves, Jesus will forgive me afterwards, or I have already been forgiven for all of my sins, future ones included. So this loophole uh, in evangelicalism has absorbed that secular world's divorce and remarriage ethic, just as it has absorbed the secular world's contraceptive mentality. So as we have seen, it is very, very clear from Jesus and his church that divorce from a valid union can never, ever be an exception. Um, and an annulment is very different from a divorce in that it's actually not a divorce. An annulment is in a declaration that would show that, yeah, an actual one, one flesh union never validly took place in the first place. And this is the good news of Jesus, though. This is the beauty of marriage because it is supposed to reflect that, that full, free, faithful, and fruitful giving of Jesus to his church on the cross. And that's what our marriages are supposed to be, indissoluble, never breaking apart. For what God has put together, let no man separate. 